Well, good morning, everybody. All right. Well, as I mentioned, uh, since we're at Palm Sunday and we we tend to have a a few more visitors in case you're visiting here with us this morning, my name is Isaac. I am the associate pastor, officially the the pastor of worship and family ministries here at Crosspoint. And uh, I'm teaching this morning. Josh had planned, as I said, to go and do some prison ministry today, uh, but he's been sick. I had all kinds of great jokes about him going to prison. Um, So they're just going to have to wait until next time he goes, but they're still funny every time. So... uh, Well, last week, uh, Josh started our current series on burial, and this is our Easter series that we're going to be going through about being dead to sin and being alive to Christ, dying to our former ways and being alive to Christ. And so last week, he taught from Romans 5 uh, on the very same uh, first few verses that Paul just read, uh, verses 1 through 5, about sensational suffering. And so uh, I'm going to pick up where he left off and... um, and uh, we're going to keep going through this, Lord willing. And then uh, he's going to, uh, you know, like I said, Lord willing, he'll be, he'll be restored in health. And he'll come back on, on Friday night for our Good, our good Friday service and then on Easter Sunday. Uh, and, uh, and he'll preach and finish out this series as we work our way through Romans 5 and 6 uh, in this series. So, all right. Well, as I was preparing for this message, um, I came across a couple of different articles that I thought were pretty interesting, and, uh, and I don't know if anybody has heard of this thing called the American Freshman Survey. Uh, I hadn't heard of it before, but apparently it's this, it's this statistical data. It's a survey that has been done every year for first-year freshmen at colleges and universities across the country. And this is something that this group has done this survey since about 1966. And uh, basically, it just takes information from students about uh, you know, their study habits, their grades, what they think of school, what they think of themselves, their classmates, their teachers, and just the education system. So it's this far-reaching survey. But the last couple of years have showed a, a pretty interesting trend. And so this year, according to the survey, and this, it actually made the news recently, but according to the survey, college freshmen nowadays are 30% more likely today to consider themselves above average in their drive to succeed, their writing ability, their leadership capabilities, and their intellect. So this is college freshmen. They're not comparing themselves to other people specifically, like saying, we're smarter than them. It's just a question that they were asked was like, okay, are you above average in X, Y, or Z? And between 1966 or 70 or so to today, today they're 30% more likely to say, yeah, we're, yeah, we're above average. But it's really interesting because then when you look at the actual uh, results of their survey, their test scores are lower. And their study habits, they study fewer hours per week. And, uh, and I think that we can all uh, safely assume that texting is to blame, but they have a, a smaller grasp of the English language. And so, so they think that they're more gifted and more hardworking and more driven than anybody ever before. But in actuality... Uh, they're actually lazier and dumber. So it's, it kind of made, it's kind of funny. Um, uh, you know, one psychiatrist put it, he said, you know, we're raising a generation of deluded narcissists. And uh, so I know, I know young at heart guys in the back, you're back there thinking, oh, be still my heart. This is a word from the Lord. But uh, I'm, not, I'm not just trying to pick on college students. I think this is really indicative of our culture as a whole today. Uh, regardless of the age group and, and the generation, you know, specifically this one is focused on college students, but I think you could look at any group of people in our country nowadays, and there's just this kind of entitlement that we have as Americans and even as Christians. 
And so, uh, so we're going to talk about this today and about how, uh, how that applies to this, this passage in Romans. But before we get into a little bit more of that, um, let me just review again what Josh taught about from Romans 5, 1 through 5. Uh, we won't read through this again, but, uh, but the, the, if you're not familiar with the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is the author of it. And he didn't write it as a book. He wrote it as a letter to the early Christians that were living in Rome. And so this is just a little bit after the time of Jesus. Uh, and so these Christians that are in Rome, they're experiencing persecution. I mean, you, you hear stories about the Colosseum and the terrible things that happen to Christians. So this is what these people are experiencing and, uh, and so Paul is writing this to them, and you can tell from the way that he addresses them and the things that he addresses what their needs are, what they need to hear. And what they, what they seem to be struggling with, according to this passage, is that they doubt maybe even if God loves them or if God remembers them. You know, they, they're experiencing persecution and they're experiencing hardship and suffering, and so they think, I mean, are we just not important? I mean, does God not care for us? And so Paul is writing this, and he's saying, you know, don't, don't believe that at all. Don't think that God doesn't love you. God loves you so much. And these sufferings, this, these hardships that you're going through, each one of these things is evidence that God loves you because he's showing you there's something so much greater beyond this life that we are hoping for. And so everything that you go through is drawing you closer to him and drawing you into him. And so even these hardships are evidence of how much God loves you and how much we can hope in God. And so that's what Josh taught through last week. So, so back to uh, the freshman survey. I think that if you look at, at the Romans' point of view of feeling like you're kind of worthless before God, and then you look at our point of view, uh, or our college-age students' point of view, it's safe to say that we've maybe overcorrected a little bit, right? Uh, you know, th- we've gone from, from one opposite side, which is, you know, I'm, I'm not worthy, or, or thinking, you know, I'm struggling just to believe that God loves me. And now we're on the opposite side, and we're thinking, well, I don't know if you realize this, but, you know, we're Americans. I don't know why God wouldn't want us on his team, right? We're the best country that God ever founded. And, and so we have this kind of this, uh, overconfidence about ourselves. And so at first, at first glance, it almost seems like it's so different in cultures that, that we can't even relate to what these people are going through. But I think if you look below the surface, it's the same root issue. Whether you're overconfident, whether you feel like, like you're unworthy to come before God, we, we have the same thing, and that is that, that we don't trust God. You know, either we, we're afraid that, that God's not going to follow through on what he says he is, and what he says he will, you know, that, that he doesn't quite love us as much as he did, or we're, we're afraid that, that God's plan, it doesn't quite line up with what I had hoped for myself. And so, you know, so, so we go our own way and we stick to our own path and we're really ambitious and we're really busy and all that. But either, either side of the equation, it all stems from this lack of trusting in God. You know, we want our own path to happiness, and so we live as close to the rules as possible, or, or we break as many of the rules as possible. You know, but ultimately, it's, it's our pride and our flesh that, that makes us at war with the Holy Spirit. 
Right? The Holy Spirit is, is seeking to guide us and to give us power in our life to live for Christ. And so when we're doing these things, when, we're, when we, when we uh, feel unworthy and so we push God away, or, or we feel more than worthy and so we just kind of, you know, okay, yeah, that's nice. You know, then either way, it's the same thing where we don't trust God and we end up being at war with the Holy Spirit in our own soul. And so the big question that I want us to consider this morning is how do we lay down our weapons? How do we surrender ourselves and trust God? So I believe in this passage, Paul describes three weapons that we use, specifically in the church, three weapons that we use to fight against the Holy Spirit that we need to overcome. And that is our past, our future, and our present. And this is what we're going to look at today in Romans. In Romans chapter 5, our past, our future, and the present. So, the good news is that the first weapon that Paul identifies is our past. And so, the good news is that yesterday was entirely erased. And we see this in verses 6 through 8. I tell you, I went and uh, left my Bible at home. So, I'm using a pew Bible today. So, I got to look them up just like everybody else today. Okay, so uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5, uh, and uh, we're going to stay here, so keep your finger in this, in this spot all day. But Romans chapter 5, uh, we see this idea of, their, of your past in, uh, in verses 6 through 8. So I'm going to back up just a little bit to verse 5, and we're going to read from 5 through 8. And it says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would, even, would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now there's a, uh, there's a story in Greek mythology about two men named Pythias and Damon. And as the story goes... Uh, these two men were best friends, and, uh, and Pythias got into a little bit of legal trouble because he, had, he was part of this plot to, to try and overthrow part of the government. And of course, their plot went bad, and he got found out, and he was sentenced for treason, and, and they were going to execute him for his crimes. And, uh, and he, he went before the king, and he just said, okay, I, I know that I'm guilty. I've done everything that you said, but, but just, just give me a little bit of time. I just want to go and set my affairs in order and talk to my family just to explain to them what's happening because this is far away from his hometown and just say, you know, I will come back and I will face the penalty of my, of my crimes. And, uh, and, of course, the king, he said, well, I'm, not, I'm no fool. As soon as I set you free, you're going to run. You're never going to come back. We're never going to see you again. So absolutely not. And, and it was at that moment then that, that Pythias' best friend, Damon, stood forward. And he said, I will stand in his place. If he doesn't come back at the appointed time that he has agreed to, you can execute me for him. And so the king was happy with this. He said, okay, yeah, that's fine. So Pythias was released. He was set free, and he took off out of town, uh, presumably off to go see his family and to set his affairs in order. And so then Damon was kept in prison. And over time, they got closer and closer to this appointed date of when this execution would take place, and Pythias hadn't returned. And they got closer and closer, and he, he hadn't returned, and they hadn't heard of any ships coming in that he would be on. And so they were growing more concerned, and the king just assumed, well, it's exactly as I said. He was a fool. He, he 
put his life on the line for this guy that just ran away. And so they started getting ready to execute Damon in, in his place. And right at the moment, as the executioner was about to deliver the fatal blow, Pythias burst into the room and said, I'm here. Don't take this man's life. And the king, you know, of course, he was just totally dumbfounded by this. He just, he could not believe the loyalty that these two men had showed for one another. And so what could he do? But he pardoned Pythias and he set both men free. Now, and that's a nice story, but have you thought about really who you would give your life to save? I mean, sometimes, sometimes I guess in your morbid thoughts, you think about things like this, you know, like, okay, you know, you'd give your life for your spouse or for your kids, or, or you think about what would happen if it was a really close friend like these two guys. Um, but imagine with me for a moment, imagine that you've been asked to save the life of, of an enemy, like not just an enemy, but, but think if there was a criminal that broke into your house and attacked your family in your own home. Now, the good news is they caught the guy, right? Uh, he was sent to jail, and ultimately he was sentenced to the death penalty for his crimes. But he has one chance that he can escape this penalty, and that is if you would die in his place and take his execution for him. Now, i got to be honest. I mean, I, I was thinking through this process in my mind, and I had other kind of illustrations in that uh, that I really had thought about using for that because, I mean, this, this is just, uh, it, it feels wrong, right? This isn't, this isn't talking about, like, well, you jump in a river if there's a little boy drowning, and you save him, and you may give your life, but this is this heroic act. No, th- no this is talking about somebody who's done something horribly wrong, and they're going to get what they deserve, and then you would go and stand in their place and take the punishment that they earned. I mean, nobody's going to give their life for Ted Bundy or for John Wayne Gacy. or something. I mean, this is offensive to my, to my spirit to think about that sort of scenario. Uh, but, but look at this again in, in verse 8 uh, of Romans. <clears throat> Excuse me. You're going to have lots of time to find the vast passages with me because all my bookmarks are gone. In verse 8, it says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. <clears throat> now, some of you, I, if you're anything like me, I think some of you are probably going to have a little bit of trouble getting past this, this first point. Um, of, of really just being able to, to think, okay, all right, my past is just gone. I don't have to consider it anymore. God has washed it away. As guilty as I was, it's clean. And, and you know, it's just human nature, I think, a lot of, for a lot of us, that we, we have a really hard time getting past the things that we've done. And, uh, you know, maybe it's a mistake that you made 10 years ago. Maybe it's something that you did last night. Uh, but, but there's something that just weighs you down, and you can't get it out of your mind. And I want you just to be encouraged that God has set you free from that. You know, in Romans chapter 8, I'll just read this to you. In Romans 8, 1 and 2, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, I've, uh, I've benefited a lot from the teaching of Dr. Charles Stanley on this one topic specifically. Uh, so a lot of you have probably heard of me as a radio uh, sermons that he does, um, a, pre- a preacher down in Atlanta. And um, 
he talks a lot, and in one specific sermon that I remember on the, hearing on the radio, he talked a lot about guilt versus conviction. And I think a lot of the, the struggles that we have in this area come from this confusion of terms, of guilt versus conviction. Uh, and I'm not talking about guilt like, like you're legally guilty. I'm talking about the feeling of guilt that we have in our own spirit. Uh, and he preached on this subject, and he said, you know, a lot of times we assume that we get these negative feelings, and, and it makes us feel unworthy, and it kind of tears us down, and we think that this is something that we must have done. We, we can't put our finger on it. We, we don't really know why, but we just, we just feel dirty or, or less than worthy, and, and like we're not quite good enough for God. And the truth is that this, this is guilt, and this is something that, that the devil will use to just break down our confidence in God's love for us. On the opposite side of that is conviction. And, and these two things, people think that they're the same thing, but conviction is specific it has some, this is something that the Holy Spirit does in a believer's heart. It's identifiable with a specific sin that you need to repent of. And you can tell the difference because guilt always pulls us away from God and sends us away from God. And conviction restores us to God because it's, it's showing us where we've sinned, where we're wrong. And we need to repent of that and be drawn in closer to God. And some of us, the reason why we can't get past these past mistakes we have, it's not because we aren't forgiven, it's just because we won't realize that God has accepted us. And so that's what we're going to continue talking about today, but I just want to encourage you with that. And I want to give you one more, one more verse just to help cement this in your mind, that your past is gone. So turn just a couple of pages over to 2 Corinthians. It's a little bit to the right. 2 Corinthians 5. If you're in the Pew Bible, page 966. And uh, scan down to verse um, 17 and 18. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So our past mistakes have been totally wiped clean. I mean, completely blotted out. There's not a, a trace of this stain of sinful life that we have that's not been forgiven by God. You know, he takes care of, of the sin we have, and he wipes us clean of our past mistakes. And, uh, and Paul says that we have, in 18, he says, we have this ministry of reconciliation. And if you keep reading through there, you know, you can see already Paul's theology showing through that, that we are saved, that God brings us into himself and, and he doesn't just save us, but he reconciles us. And then there's this overflow of reconciliation to where we're saved so we can help other people come to know Jesus. And so they can be brought into the family of God. And it's this growing and outpouring of love and the Holy Spirit that we have in our life. And, and, and that's this ministry of reconciliation that he's talking about. That it's not just me-centered, it's this community of believers that we're a part of and that we grow together as a part of. And so, so um, what he, that's what he means by this ministry of reconciliation. We are actually called to make disciples and we're called to grow the church, you know, the, the big, the capital C church, you know, globally. We're called to make more disciples, bring more people to Jesus as a result of this reconciliation that God has done in our own heart. 
So the first weapon that we use to fight against the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is our past. But we can rejoice because yesterday was entirely erased. But what can rob us of this joy of forgiveness? Well, that's worrying about tomorrow, right? And that's why I want, to, I want you to remember that tomorrow is already assured. And we see this in Romans, in, in, uh, again in 5. We're going to just keep working through this uh, passage verse by verse. And uh, we'll go here to verses 9 and 10. And it says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Now, if you watch the news much, uh, or if you used to watch the news much, uh, back in around 2001, you may remember the story of Martin and Gracia Burnham. And uh, this is, uh, there are a couple, they were on the news in, in 2001, 2002, uh, that he was a pilot for New Tribes Mission. They were serving as missionaries in the Philippines. And so he would fly his Cessna airplane from their missions base to a lot of rural, unreachable places where they had missionaries stationed because they were doing outreach with the gospel to these unreached tribes and people groups uh, that are just far out into the jungles in the Philippines. And so he would fly his plane back and forth to these areas, bringing supplies and just encouraging these missionaries and working with them. And he and his wife had pretty much spent their whole married life on the mission field. They had three kids that were about adolescent age, and, uh, and they were getting ready to celebrate their 18th wedding anniversary. And so in one of the areas where he flew to, there was this little, um, kind of like a resort, you know, by our standards, it would be pretty, pretty inexpensive, uh, but a nice place over there. And so she made all these plans to surprise him, and they went over to this, this little beach uh, cabin to spend their 18th wedding anniversary. And so they bedded down for the night. They're away from the kids, and, and they're laying in bed asleep. When in the middle of the night, it's pitch dark out, all of a sudden somebody starts banging on the cabin door. And they don't, and, and you know, at first they think, oh, you know, it's a guard or something. You know, he's probably looking for something. He's probably drunk or who knows what. And, uh, but it keeps going and then suddenly the door bursts open and armed men run into the room and ransack all of their things. They barely have time to get dressed before they drag them out of the house, out of the cabin, force them onto a boat with the guests of the other cabins that are here in this resort, and they take them on this boat trip, a week's journey across the sea, and they hold them on an island that's isolated from the rest of the Philippines for over a year as hostages. Now, after they're, they're there for months in captivity... And, uh, and you can read the story. You know, his wife, Gracia, wrote a book about it called In the, in, the, uh, in the Presence of My Enemies. And it's an excellent book. And she tells about the story about how they, they were forced to do work for these men. And they were forced to uh, be in this camp. And they'd carry mortars and carry sandbags and these sorts of things. And it was basically a terrorist organization that was trying to get ransom for them and trying to get government reforms. And after a few months of them being in captivity... All of a sudden, in the camp where they were, a large sum of money was put in the middle of the camp. And so they said they, they went and, and all of the, the, the men for this group uh, gathered the prisoners. And he called Martin and Gracia forward and he said, Okay, well, we just want you to know that uh, a ransom has been paid for your release. You know, and they said immediately their hearts started filling with joy like, Oh, our, our families have, 
have been able to pool their resources together, and they sent this all over to us. And before they could respond to it, then the, the leader of this group said, but we've decided it's not enough. And they sent them back to jail. Now, you hear a lot about hope these days. You know, I mean, you hear it in campaign slogans for politicians. You hear it in marketing ploys. You hear all these things. A lot of people talk about hope. Uh, and, uh, but we don't really know what it is. I mean, it's, kind of, it's more like a marketing term, and it's trendy to say hope, but we don't really think about what hope is. You know, Webster's defines it as, as a feeling or a desire for a certain event or thing to take place. So, for example, like if I say, I hope my kids are okay, that means that I hope that when I am reunited with my kids, they're going to be safe and healthy. So there's this point in the future at which my hope will be consummated with the action or the, the event that I hope will take place. And so we hope because there's something in the future that we want to see happen. So imagine, imagine that you stand before God someday. You go through your whole life, you stand before God, you've had your faith in Christ, and when God is, is there and you're at the judgment seat, he says, well, your odds are about 50-50 about when you get in, about whether you're going to be in heaven or whether you're going to be in hell. So I got a quarter, so heads or tails. And <laughs> I mean, this, this is not hope, right? This is, uh, this is the opposite of hope, you know, in, in Earlier in, in this passage in Romans, it says that hope does not disappoint. There's only this one hope that doesn't disappoint. And that's why uh, verse 9, when we read that, it says that the most difficult thing for Jesus to do was to, to take this group of sinful people and to justify them before a holy and righteous God. So the hard thing was done already in the past, that he justified us by his blood to bring us to God and we are on equal standing, innocent, in legal standing with God. And so that means that we are assured of our salvation, that tomorrow is already assured because he's done the hard thing, so of course we can count on him to do this relatively easy thing of saving us from God's wrath on Judgment Day. So we can have confidence in our faith that we don't have to work for it. Okay, then verse 10, it, it looks like Paul is kind of saying the same thing here. They're kind of written in parallel to one another, uh, but he has a slight change in his language that I, that I want you to, to read. Uh, you know, in that verse again, it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And so there's this change, right? He starts off in verse 9, he says, justified. And then in verse 10, he says, reconciled. Uh, otherwise, the verses are really similar. But I think it's a really important change. You know, if you look back uh, in, in Exodus, in verses, you know, chapters 21 through 30 or so, uh, in the part that when you're reading your Bible, it kind of gets a little monotonous. God gives them the Ten Commandments, and then he says, you know, you should not boil a goat in its mother's milk and all these regulations and guidelines. And he goes through for 10, 20 chapters of regulations and ways that society should operate. You know, the thing that you see in all of that is that uh, there's this overarching theme over the law that God gives to the Israelites. And, you know, nowadays, if somebody steals something, we throw them in jail, right? Or we put them in counseling, um, or we do something like that. But, but they didn't have this therapeutic sort of system or this, this vengeful sort of system uh, back then. You know, if somebody stole something, then there was payments and there were penalties, but it was so they would be restored 
with the person who they had wronged. So there's this theme of reconciliation and of restoration when you look at the Old Testament, that the parties are to be joined back together. God looked at the people of Israel and he said, okay, your cousins, you're all descended in the same family. Your cousins, your brothers and sisters, your fathers and sons. And so you can't just divide yourselves and be angry and just form these, these sects and have this, this racial uh, uh, dividing lines between the different lines of, of Abraham and of Israel. No, we need to have all of these people be one. And so we have this, this reconciliation that we see. And so then when we look at these verses in Romans, you know, it makes it a little bit more interesting because when you, you notice that the Apostle Paul, you know, he wrote these things to be like one another where he starts off saying, okay, since we're justified, we're going to be saved. And since we're reconciled, we're going to be saved. And so it's not just a judge that's saying, okay, you're innocent, you're free to go. No, this is, this is like a father coming to his child and saying, I accept you. So this is great news for us because we don't need to work at our salvation to earn it, right? I mean, this is, this is amazing news for us because we're not any good at that. Uh, we don't have to read the Bible more to make God love us. We don't have to for, fast 40 days a year to make God love us, right? We don't have to give away 90% of our income to make God love us. There's nothing wrong with these things, but, but God already loves us. We don't have to convince him to love us. And if you've put your faith in Christ, you're already forgiven, right? Your hope in salvation is already assured. And so yesterday is entirely erased. Tomorrow is already assured. But what about now, right? Well, the third and the final weapon that, that we use to fight against the Holy Spirit working in our lives is the present. And so what I want you to remember is that today is radically reconciled. And this is the, the last verse here in Romans 5. Is uh, Romans 5 verse 11. And it says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So it, it's a little bit hard language just to read it right from that point. But So if you think of it in, the, in the, the context of that passage, he's saying, okay, we're reconciled and we're brought before God and we're on equal standing. But beyond that, more than that, even more important than that, we rejoice now because we're reconciled today. So, you know what they say, uh, a husband is going to take a bullet for his wife. I mean, he, he won't even question that, right? But he might not give over the remote to the TV. <laughs> you know, we're really good at these big things. You know, uh, I'm really good at, at maybe... Um, scheduling a vacation that me and my wife can go on, or, or that I can give her this great big gift, you know, a nice set of earrings for Christmas, but then the rest of the time throughout the year, you know, as the year goes on or as the decade goes on, you kind of forget that that thing is over and past, and there's another week, another day, another month, another year, and, and it's harder to show our love for our spouse or, or our special people in our lives. And I think that our, our spiritual lives kind of end up a lot of the same way, that we can make these grandiose promises for God. You know, January 1st comes in, we're going to read the Bible every day, we're going to pray for an hour and a half every day, we're going to fast every Tuesday. And, but the day-to-day, -day, living out our faith in practical terms gets a little bit 
you know, we just, we just kind of fall off track. And, and we don't quite look at the big picture. And, and in our practical day-to-day faith, we kind of struggle a little bit with that. <clears throat> Excuse me. I need to get some water. So when we look at this chapter in verse 1, Paul starts off and he says, We have been justified by faith. So we're at peace with God. So he starts off saying, we are justified, so we are not at war with God. We are not at odds with him. He is not against us because we've already been justified by his blood. And then he goes and he builds through this chapter and he goes, or through this section and it gains momentum as he, as he tells through suffering and through building endurance and, and character and hope. And he finally gets to this verse 11 and this is kind of the capstone on it. And he says, we rejoice because we are reconciled. And so that word reconciled, I mean, we don't use that much in our day and age, but this is such a a massive change. This is such a relational word. We go from just being okay with the law to being embraced like the prodigal son coming home to his father. That there's this, there's this relational sense of what Paul is saying that, that, I mean, if we're innocent with the law, I mean, that's just where we are now, right? We didn't get pulled over on the way to church, so we're innocent with the law, like we're square. You know, we, we didn't get tickets, most of us anyway. Uh, we didn't get tickets for driving here on the way to church, and that's as good as we are, is that we aren't, we aren't in trouble, And so that's not what Paul is saying. He's saying we're rejoicing not because we just didn't get in trouble. We're rejoicing because God is emphatically in love with us and accepting us and drawing us into him. And I, I honestly think that the problem is it's not that we need to work harder to do this day by day. It's not that we need to uh, just just put more effort and more strength of our own power into doing this thing to feel like we can get our Christian life right. Now, I think that the problem really stems from something even deeper than that, and it's that we don't think enough of this reconciliation that we already have, right? It's not that we don't think of it enough. It's that we don't think enough of it. Like the value that we place on what God has done for us is so low that we feel like anything that we can do, whether it's like I said, breaking all of the rules or following all the rules, all these other things. We have all of these ideas that we have of what's going to make us happy, what's going to bring us joy in our life. And so we end up rejecting what God has for us. You know, we think we, ha- we can be satisfied by all of these things, but we reject infinite joy. This is what C.S. Lewis said. He wrote, uh, he wrote a book called The Weight of Glory. And I love this quote. You've probably heard it before. Uh, But it says, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So let me close with this. Yesterday is entirely erased Tomorrow is already assured, and today is radically reconciled. You know, the church at Rome doubted the love of God. They, they had this struggle to make sure that God really loved them in the face of these trials and these things that they were going through. 
And so maybe that's where you are. I mean, that honestly, this is, this is more of where I struggle, is that, that I get down on myself. And I, I tend to be a glass half empty, pessimistic, the, the sky is falling type of a person. And so something bad happens and I just think, oh, God is judging me because I'm such an awful person. And uh, I could see some people nodding that you understand what this feels like. And, and it's a dangerous place to live because... You know, think about what you're saying is that if you feel like God is judging you for how you are, if you feel like his wrath is on you, you're saying that Christ's death, Christ's work on the cross, his death and his resurrection were not enough. That means that, that if you live that way, you're practically saying when you get to heaven, it's a, it's a coin flip whether you get in because, you know, I took a lot of that myself. I mean, this is, this is why the, the, uh, the concept of purgatory doesn't work because, because Christ absorbed all of God's wrath. We don't have to burn off additional sin that he didn't take care of with the atonement. He takes care of all of God's wrath and he saves us from punishment. And so maybe you are in sin and maybe God is rebuking you for sin, but he's not judging you. He wants to draw you into him to show you how much he loves you. Or maybe you're on the other side. Maybe you're like a lot of Americans today and you're a little bit overconfident about how great you are. Uh, or you, you've got a lot of giftings and you feel like, you know, I, I haven't really rebelled. I've never gone through that kind of phase where I regret all of my teenage, high school, college years. Like maybe you didn't go through that and so you don't have a lot of regret. And so you maybe feel a little bit overconfident in that. But, but again, this, these, these things come from the same source, and that is that, that we want to put ourselves on the throne. We want to make ourselves God, because we think that whatever we can choose, our, our ambitions, the things that we're striving after, uh, we think that they're going to bring us joy, but we're rejecting God's infinite joy. And like C.S. Lewis said, we're, we're making mud pies in a slum, and these selfish, fleeting desires that we have, they're going to pass away and they're going to leave us unfulfilled again and again. And so it's time to just stop running. You know, we need to place, you need to place your faith in Christ. First, for salvation. You know, if you haven't trusted in Christ, let this be your moment. He's already taken away the penalty of sin. You don't have to bear the burden or work it off. He has taken that from you. Or if you are a believer, just take the step to trust in him. Give up your guilt and your condemnation of the past mistakes that you're letting wear you down and, and just let go of your future ambitions and your plans and just walk away from your desire to control everything. Come to him as a child and just let him over, overwhelm you. He has poured out his love on us and he is waiting for you to receive it. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for this morning again. We thank you that your love has been poured out over us, Lord, that you are generously giving your grace to us, Lord. We ask that you would continue to work in us, that you would give us the strength and the ability to have confidence in the work that you've already done on the cross for us, Lord, that it's not us, it's not about what we can do, Lord, it's about what you have already done for us. So thank you again. It's in your name we pray. Amen.